one thing that motorcycle riding is great for doing, and that's sort of refreshing your mind. You ever notice that? You come back from a trip and you just feel ready to go again. It's, it's like you've centered yourself. Well, obviously, Christian Ensign thinks along those lines as well because he found himself at a point where he needed to get recentered, needed some off-grid time, so to speak. Then he thought about his dad, Todd Ensign. His dad's an accountant. He also needed to get away from routine to shake up life and, and, and enjoy some adventure. So for his dad's birthday, Christian gifted him a rider safety course. Then he got him a motorcycle, and then he planned a route for the father-son team to ride that would be the ultimate adventure for them. It ended up not going to plan. They would test their riding skills, their stamina, and even their relationship. Mistakes are made, bikes are damaged, stress is high, and at the very end, well, you're going to have to listen to the whole story for that. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Payne. Bill Bergoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Oh. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com is Christian Ensign, and I am currently living in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and my job is up in the air. I'm a former Marine infantry officer and uh, currently transitioning to a corporate role with Amazon. And my name is Todd Ensign. I'm a certified public accountant, and I own my own CPA firm and work out of Greenwood, Indiana, which is a suburb of Indianapolis. Now, Christian and Todd, you you are father and son. Todd being the father, Christian being the son. Todd, um, for for growing up, for Christian, what was that like? He was uh, he was an adventurer from birth. He was uh, had energy that uh, is admirable. And uh, one thing that I always enjoyed about Christian is that he was always happy. And he was a happy child. And uh, even when he was sick, he still had a smile on his face, still had the energy, and just uh, uh, a wonderful, you know, just a wonderful son. Yeah, he, uh, he brought a lot of... Uh, a lot of the energy to our home. My wife and I have uh, five children, uh, one girl after him and then three other boys. And uh, he's been a, a great, great leader in our, yeah, for our children. And, and uh, it has been uh, just wonderful from day one. 
Todd, what was it like growing up for you from your perspective? I was, uh, my dad was in the Air Force. He was, he's a, was a bomber pilot in World War II. And so we traveled uh, extensively and uh, then took a job in civil service as a meteorologist and uh, bought a farm. And I grew up on a, on a farm and a lot of hard work. And uh, it's one thing I still take with me today is I learned how to work hard. But it was, uh, it was an enjoyable time. So, How do you get into accounting from farming? Well, that's interesting. My dad said, uh, my dad, of course, like, like I said, was in the Air Force. And when I went in the Marine Corps, he, uh, it, it was a little upsetting for him. But um, he wanted me to go into the Air Force. But anyway, I, he told me when, when I got out, he said, son, now either become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And I said, okay, well, I'll just become an accountant. So I pursued it. That's, that's really how I made my decision. How old are you, Todd? I am 64. I'll be 65 here in a couple of weeks. And Christian, what did your dad, Todd, say to you that you should do in life? Um, <laughs> uh, pursue my passions and follow my dreams. Wow. That's quite a bit different, Todd, than what you were told. Is that bit of information as a result of the path that you took? I think so. You know, you, you, we can't, we can't go back and, and change the past. It is what it is. And, you know, in retrospect, would I have chosen to become an accountant if I could go back and make the choice over again? I, I don't know that I would. And, uh, I would, you know, love to be a teacher and a coach and, and I just have a passion for that. And uh, uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, instead of telling my children what to do, I want them to find what they love and enjoy and, you know, try to pursue that. And it's, uh, it's difficult sometimes, but, yeah, it's, uh, that's what I want them to do. What do you mean it's difficult? Uh, actually realizing it sometimes. Yeah. And life doesn't work out, you know, a lot of the times the way we want it to. And, uh, just, uh, you know, being able to, uh, pursue those dreams sometimes is, is difficult, especially when you have families and, and, uh, yeah. Responsibility. Responsibility. (laughs) What's it like being an accountant? Oh, go ahead and sugarcoat this. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been, you know, I was a controller when I got out of out of college, and it was uh, singularly focused, and uh, I really, really enjoyed that, and was was doing that for about seven years, and uh, then I moved into. I was offered a job with a um, CPA firm, a national CPA, CPA firm, in the public accounting realm. So I, that's what I went into and I went into the tax side. I'm not a not an auditor. I don't care for it. But uh, so I went on the tax side and um, have uh, worked in that industry since 1990. And 
I was with this uh, national firm, became a part tax partner in the firm, and and uh, we eventually, in 2012, spun off the the uh, commercial tax practice, and I took that and formed my own uh, firm. And uh, but it, public accounting is a very high stress environment, and you're dealing with people's taxes, their money, and uh, uh, then you have in in our firm anyway. Uh, it's not this case for the case for every CPA firm, but in our firm, it's uh, highly intensive from January to April. And, you know, trying to manage that stress and, and do it economically uh, and, you know, serve your clients well and timely is uh, very stressful. And uh, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, I would say it's a high stress environment. So, What do you do to relax then, in particular, because it's so stressful? I want to ride, ride. You know, I have Christian, uh, when he was in the Marine Corps, he had a motorcycle. And, and that's really what, what started this, this entire adventure. And um, uh, he continued to ride. And, and uh, he said, Dad, let's, let's uh, get going on this. And he kept pushing me. And I, my wife, uh, is she was a former EMT. And and she's seen a lot of things happen on the road, and she's not been real, you know, she wasn't really uh, positive about me getting on a bike. Uh, but my colleague, who I worked for, he was my boss for, you know, 30 years, and, and uh, now he helps me uh, in our tax, my tax practice. And, and he's ridden um, his uh, Honda Goldwing, you know, for 50 years and has toured the country and and spent uh, countless hours on his bike and and he said Todd you just got to be careful and and uh, use wisdom and good common sense and and you'll be okay and so uh, it's um, uh, so anyway so I have to work through my wife and and uh, but um, it's uh, I just love getting on the bike. There's for me. There's that's that's the most relaxing thing that I that I do. I enjoy CrossFit. Uh, you know, working out. That's a good stress reliever. But uh, getting on the bike and just uh, going on the open road is it just brings rest to me. Christian, so your dad tells you do what you want to do. Do what makes you passionate in life. What do you do? Yeah. So it's funny. I was just thinking in my head while he was talking, Jim, we probably need to pay you $200 an hour for this because this is going to turn into therapy. <laughs> oh, it's not. I'm keeping track. Don't worry. I'll keep track. The bill's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. No, Jim, I went to a private, um, a private, uh, I guess you could call it, they would see themselves as a liberal art, uh, liberal arts college. Uh, I think that you and I would both see it as a, uh, a Christian school. So I went to Asbury College. They've since renamed themselves Asbury University. And so I did a history degree. And so after that, I went to Asbury Theological Seminary to pursue a master's of biblical studies. And so my cousin, Aaron, uh, was in the Marine Corps, and he was uh, in the early stages of what we would consider Operation Iraqi Freedom, or OIF-1, as they left Kuwait and continued their march north. Um, 
And so the war drum was kind of beating in my chest. And my dad talked about the sense of adventure. I mean, I've always had a sense of adventure, whether it was starting a, 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 a dead poet society at my local college where we snuck in illegally into caves and smoked cigars and thought we were super, super intellectuals, which we weren't, um, you know, or driving heavy equipment or do, you know, doing whatever. Um, so that drum started beating and I ended up applying and being granted an opportunity to lead Marines. And I think Jim, that's really important and, and pretty foundational in the way that I see the world. Um, forget causation, forget politics, right? The opportunity to lead Marines is one of the most special things in my life. Um, and so what they do is they send you through an officer candidate school. And really what they're doing is evaluating your ability to, to uh, lead Marines. And so, um, you know, in OCS, Officer Candidate School for the Marine Corps Special, because it, 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 isn't, it isn't anything other than you earning the opportunity to lead. And you're evaluated, taught by, instructed, mentored by the the very uh, the very enlisted Marines that you will you will have the the privilege of leading. And so for me, it became my it became my life's calling, and uh, and I I was able to successfully complete officer candidate school, and went to the basic school in Quantico, Virginia, just adjacent to the FBI Academy there. Um, and then after that was given a, an MOS designation of 0302, which is an infantry officer. Um, and then, and then from there, after the infantry officers course went to the fleet, uh, and started my time with first battalion, fourth Marines, uh, on the, on the West coast in Camp Pendleton, California. And, and that really was the, you know, the fulfillment of a dream, um, which was to do something with a higher sense of purpose regardless, Jim, of causation and, and how we feel about the political inner workings and, and you know, the Clausewitzian notion of war and, and that. But the opportunity to lead some of the finest young men and women on the planet um, really was really became a passion for me. And so I did that um, and did a total of six deployments Five were recognized with the Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, which are over 90 days. The other one was just short of 90-day deployment. But during that time, I found the motorcycle. And it was actually, uh, it was it's funny, it was a thing of convenience, right? So I lived in Carlsbad, California, and had to commute up the, what, what I call the Interstate 5 or the 5 uh, in California, all the way up to the center of Camp Pendleton, really the northern end of Camp Pendleton to uh, Camp Horno up there. And we only had one car at the time and really didn't have the money to get a second car, nor that, nor could we pay the gas prices uh, that were pretty high out there in California. And so I found a motorcycle and the guy that I sold it from was also a Marine and it was on the lot and it was a 1983 Honda 650 Nighthawk. So I get, Jim, I try to get it started and I'm, it's at night. Amanda had dropped me off. Um, I didn't have a motorcycle endorsement at the time, um, and it wouldn't start. And so I push started the thing. I tried to get it started for probably 15 minutes, Jim. And then I took it out to the main road in Camp Pendleton, which is a long downhill and, uh, push started it and fired right up. 
within within 30 seconds of firing that that motorcycle up and taking off uh, I was pulled over by the the Camp Pendleton uh, military police what I didn't know is the entire time they were in the parking lot observing me trying to get this bike started <laughs> which I couldn't get started and and what clearly what it looked like to them was that I was uh, I was trying to steal the sure. bike <laughs> and so right. and so here I am as a young lieutenant uh, but this is actually the first before my first combat deployment to Fallujah, Iraq, I, I'm I'm in the parking lot with this 650 Nighthawk, trying to explain to the officer that I've just purchased the motorcycle and uh, and that I was just driving it home so that I could get uh, my endorsement. Um, so anyway, but Jim, the transition out of the military uh, was uh, I had orders in hand to command at SOI East, the School of Infantry East. Um, in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, very good orders. Um, and, uh, I turned them down. Uh, I, I denied what we call denying orders, which is kind of a big deal and got out. And Jim, this goes back to our conversation, right? It, it, it ultimately my transition and in, in that of so many transitioning veterans is it is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, transitioning out of the military. And uh, when you go from an environment where there's shared mission, vision, values, where people are willing to overlook their differences, knowing that I'm going to have to stand alongside him or her for something much greater than myself, um, that is ultimately going to, you know, the result in human capital um, is a, is a, a, a very difficult, but also an equally special place to be. And when you transition out to the private sector, um, it's a very different environment and it's a lot of stepping over people. Um, and it's vicious and it's not focused on the mission, the vision values. It's not focused on the collective team. It's focused on the individual, at least in my experience, um, in and around publicly traded companies. And so that's really how I reconnected uh, with the motorcycle again. So anyway. you're kind of thrown out, like you're talking about when you get into the military and you, and you go back to civilian life, you're, you're kind of thrown out. You're alone. You're, you're on your own. Yeah, Jim, you are on your own. And, and, you know, and I have communicated to a lot of veterans that transition from the military is without question, one of the most difficult things you're going to do. Um, because you're alone. And, and the reality is, is that there is amazing organizations. I, I've worked with a couple. I've, I've been a recipient of the benefits of a couple, including Boot Campaign out of Texas. Um, it is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And, uh, and, and really, you know, between my family, my wife, Um, being willing to suffer through it with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She should have left me a long time ago. Mm. But <clears throat> the motorcycle and the mountain bike, uh, each in their own season, um, have provided me with the... Uh, you know, Jim, in some ways in the, in the Marine Corps, right, you become a master of managing risk if you're doing your job well. 
um, because at the end of the day, the enemy always gets a vote. And um, and so not only do you have to understand yourself, right, the, this idea of Sun Tzu and understanding yourself and, and the enemy, um, but you, you, you have to spend so much time managing risk, both in operations and also just in training. Good gracious. I mean, it's so dangerous. And so you become a master at managing risk. And I think that's one of the things that, that a lot of veterans miss is that there is, you know, and, per, and probably Jim, you know, if you get a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they would probably pick this to pieces um, in terms of, in terms of uh, the experiences that are felt in the, you know, the chemicals that are released in the body during these times. But the motorcycle I have found replicates a lot of it because you just have to become a master of managing risk. And, and that's why I love the motorcycle so much is, is not only have we talked about the, the opportunities that it gives you, the people you meet, the communities that are developed and fostered, especially ones that are healthy, um, but you just have the opportunity to manage risk. And, and I think that that's been one of the beauties of it for me. When you say manage risk, are you talking about keeping yourself safe in an environment that, that is not or could be uh, unsafe? Or are you talking about managing risk as a whole, like as, a, as, a, as your whole platoon or, or, or the other people that you're there with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think both, right? I mean, from the, the translation's a little weird, but because from the Marine Corps experience, right, you are, you're, you're deconflicting all sorts of things that are happening simultaneously. And it gets even more complicated as a company commander. And one of one of the men that I respect the most from my Marine Corps experience is a guy. Well, I'll not say his name, but his nickname would be Honcho. And he's an avid rider. Uh, he rides a KTM 500 and sent me a picture recently. Um, he was my my leader. And I remember looking into his eyes one time under in a very stressful situation when I was a young lieutenant. And realizing the complexity of what he was dealing with from aviation going overhead to 81 and 120 millimeters mortars. And we were walking them, walking them in uh, as close as we could. And he was deconflicting, you know, three or four different comm uh, maneuver elements. And he's machine guns firing over our heads. And it, and so you're managing all this simultaneously in addition to, right, the enemy acting out his own will on you. And so... There's that aspect, right? And that could easily translate. Like, do I delude, you know, do how do I assess this road? How do I assess the terrain? How do I assess my my motorcycles and the tires and the capabilities and the technology I have? And 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 how do I, you know, do I do do I do delayed apexes, you know, in in and how do I understand culturally how drivers behave and road conditions and what should I anticipate around the corner and you know, what lenses should I wear? Because I'm getting ready to go. Um, I'm getting ready to go on the Blue Ridge Parkway and I'm going to, I'm going to be the cool guy that wears a smoke lens, right. That, that, so nobody can see me. And then I'm going to have sunglasses on top of that because it's super bright. And I'm going to come around a corner and there's a tunnel and I'm going to run right into the edge of the tunnel um, because I can't see anything, you know, mm-hmm. and do I use amber lights and do I wear high visibility stuff and how do I interact with my environment? Like these things. And this is why I love your podcast so much is that I, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's heavily engaging and you're, you're in this constant state of, of managing risk. And then also like the one just recently with the hog right down in Texas, I would love to talk to him. He's got a cool story. 
um, like, how do you manage that risk? You know, mm-hmm. and and if the hog translates into the enemy, which is not you know for instructional purposes only, right? Um, how you know? At what point do you just have to trust that things are going to work out the way they're going to work out? You know, and, and it's and that's why I love it so much. It's so stimulating to me. And the other thing is, Jim, I went through a, a, a period in 2018 where I was hospitalized probably eight or nine times. I'd have to check. Let's conservatively say seven. It was no less than seven from anxiety. Um, and that was a that was a really, really dark period. That's a year after I had transitioned out of the Marine Corps and I was really at the end of myself. And the, the beautiful thing about the motorcycle is, and similar to the mountain bike, is that when you're when you're engaged in this, there is not much you're thinking about other than the present, right? The present realities of what you're dealing with. Mm. And I think that that's the crux of the issue for me. Are you, are you talking about um, sort of getting yourself to the edge, that that thrill of living on the edge? Or are you talking about just dealing with what you have to deal with sort of to survive? In both instances, I'm talking when you're in the military and riding the motorcycle. Yes. I, I, what I'll tell you is, is, is that if I understand your question correctly, which I believe I do, it's both the, the problem. And I, I think Jim, the real danger, especially, and you don't have to be a military veteran for this to be the case, right? Um, you, you could have had experiences where you have got cortisol pumping through your veins and you like that feeling, you know, and, and, and that could be translated from a host of just normal civilian experiences as well. And when you get that experience, it's almost like a drug and you want to chase it and you want to chase that feeling and try to replicate it. And I have found, um, you know, and later on, right in our journey and our story for me and my dad, I ended up buying a KTM 790. And I have found that I have had to quickly check the, the first part of what you're asking there, which is the replication of that chemical response to those stressful or exciting experiences. Um, because the reality is, is that I am not as good as I think I am. Um, and I have a mentor on a motorcycle. His name is Jack and, uh, Jack calls me amigo and he's constantly telling me, dude, relax and relax um, doesn't slow down or loosen your body. Yeah. Well, just, just like you can't chase your demons on a motorcycle. Right. You can't, no, there is no speed that that say, KTM 790 or no lean angle that you're going to get into that is going to, that is going to um, fix what's broken. Right. And so for me, what I found is, Jim, is that the motorcycle cannot be, it cannot become a, a platform for, it cannot become a platform for trying to chase that feeling or experience. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to do that, um, you are going to quickly find yourself in a position where uh, you outrun the technology. Well, it's a drug addiction, isn't it? I mean, a drug inside your head that that's what stimulates is you mentioned the cortisol that that's a drug inside our head that you can, you can sort of get addicted to. And if that's what you're chasing, the problem with drug addictions is you, you never achieve that high. Do you You never achieve the high you're after you're always pushing to go one step further. And that's why I asked that because that can certainly get you in trouble as you're saying on a motorcycle without a doubt. It's sort of a management thing, isn't it? Yes, it is, Jim. And one thing, you know, so two riders that I I like to emulate, um, 
is is a guy named Terry and and, and Jack, and and I think that I think that the not the cure, but one thing that I would challenge your audience, um, if they're seeking after that, right? If they're really trying to to use the motorcycle as a way to to replicate that, is is instead, um, which is kind of what they mentored me into, is hey, try this instead, right? Why don't you slow down and try to be precise? You're you're entering and exit exiting corners with with real discipline, right? Your your mechanics and your body movement and your position and alignment as you set up to go through a series of say twisties, right? You're perfect you, the maneuvers, you're, right? You're perfecting the maneuvers and becoming highly disciplined, um, and 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 that becomes the focus instead of you know, instead of running the KTM at 9,000 RPMs and screaming into corners and being relatively undisciplined in the, in the way that you approach it. And mm-hmm. I, and I think that that has been that not only has it made me a safer rider, it's made me a better rider and I enjoy it. And, and I can, I can be more critical of myself at lower speeds. And the, the thing is with adventure riding is when you're slowing down and doing any off-road sessions, that, that is a beautiful time for it because you're slowing down. You want to master the art of maneuvering your motorcycle and mm-hmm. um, the speeds aren't there. The, you know, it's, it's a lot safer to do it that way. Yeah. Todd, Todd, the dad, uh, I want to bring you back yes. in here. You had a story about your dad. I mean, you, I guess you could have almost started riding early. Can, can you tell that story? Yeah, that's a very uh, funny story. My cousins who lived in Michigan, when we living on the farm out uh, uh, by Peru, Indiana, we, they brought two of their motocross bikes. They were Husqvarna's, Husqvarna, Husqvarna, Huskies, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I think they were. I think they were either four fifty or five hundred cc, and and they were powerful strong bikes and they let me ride one of them and it was way too much motorcycle for me at the time but uh you know rode it out in our pastures and had a great time and i just you know i was really stoked and so i went to my dad after they left and i said hey dad i want a motorcycle motocross just like like they had so i can ride ride in the pasture and and uh and riding on our farm and and uh, he said well son i'll tell you what there was a corn crib that we had out on our farm and uh, it was not being used and it was a pretty big sturdy uh corn crib i mean it was uh pretty large and he said you go tear that down and uh i'll get you a, a motorcycle and i said okay so i went out and and uh worked for weeks getting that thing torn down and stung by wasp all the time and there were housed in there and it was uh but anyway got it done and so my dad went <laughs> he got me a motorcycle he got me a suzuki two-stroke uh motorcycle and it was a road bike and i said dad i wanted a motorcycle i mean a motocross bike so i can right he said oh this will do for you and so i had to work the thing i think i put knobbies on it and and uh, it always, for some reason, it would only run on on one cylinder, and, and I kept it would shift back and forth when I was riding from one to two cylinders, clicking in. And I did my best to to work on it to try to get it, uh, you know, running consistently with the the two two cycles. But um, yeah, I just rode that thing around in my pasture and 
and out on the back and and uh, that was my first experience with a bike i totally spaced on that but uh it was uh i don't know how long i had it maybe a couple of years or, or so and maybe i got rid of it when i went in the marine corps but uh um, it was, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Pretty disappointed that I got a road bike on the farm. <laughs> you but, didn't uh, yeah. ever ride it on the street then? It was strictly an off-road? Uh, no, yeah, never never did ride it on the street. Now, I'd maybe up by, by the farm, but um, uh, never, I don't believe I ever rode it, yeah, on the road. Christian, you, um, you decide at one point that you want to do an adventure, you want to include your dad on it. Can you set that up? Sure. Yeah. So my current boss's name is Jeff and, uh, Jeff is, is an excellent leader. And, uh, right during the, the height of, uh, really COVID's, uh, supply chain disruptions, um, or at least we were really feeling them, um, work slowed down significantly. And, uh, and he knew I was burnt out. And, and so, uh, I had, he really gave me the opportunity to, uh, to take nearly two months off. And so I, I began putting together an idea of what I wanted to do. And we went back and forth and I was going to go alone. And then, you know, Jim, it's funny. There's times in your life where you want to get alone. Right. And you know that you have to, you know that you have to get out into the wilderness to deal with some things inside of yourself and, and really create the space for you to reflect and, and look towards the future. Well, it turns out that, uh, um, that can be scary. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you mean just being with yourself and, and dealing yeah, with this? Yeah. 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 You know, I read a great quote in a book one time and I, I, I can't sort it. Uh, I can't necessarily tell you where it came from. Um, but it said, it would no, it was adventure. It, it was, uh, it was the ADV forum. Um, it was the ADV forum and there was a guy and he, I saw his comment. He said, if you, if you don't like being alone, you don't like the company you keep. And, uh, and, and, and I thought that was, and I saw that comment in, uh, in a post and I thought, yeah, that's me. And, and I really, what I realized was, is that, um, that I, I, I don't like the company I keep, uh, with myself and, and, uh, and so I invited my dad along and there's two there. We'll leave out the second half, but there's two parallel things that happen here simultaneously. I realize that my family uh, also needs a break, right? We've been stuffed up in the house for a really long time and they needed a break. And so what we did was, is we said, Hey, all right, we have an opportunity here. Let's do this. So what we did was, is the kids wanted to do a, a literally an ocean to ocean road trip. And my dad and I, you know, we kind of settled on a loose plan. And so this is the way the plan shaped out. My family and I were going to go and meet my brothers on uh, literally on the on the coast of North Carolina. We were going to camp out there for three or four days on the island. And we would go back home to the mountains outside of Asheville and Black Mountain, North Carolina, pick up the bikes uh, that were on a trailer and then head west Um and then we would drive to some family in Denver, Colorado. From there, we would untrailer the bikes. Uh, my dad would fly in, and then uh, my family would continue on their own separate road trip, and then we would carry on from Denver. And the original plan was is to start in Denver, connect to the Colorado BDR off the interstate, 
And then from there, we would go up, finish the Colorado BDR. I created a my own route from the end of the Colorado BDR in Section 6 over to the middle of Section 5 of the Utah BDR. And Jim, I'm telling you, that is one of the best rides I've ever done in my life, um, is connecting the northern end of the Colorado BDR over to the Utah BDR. And then from there, we would finish, uh, finish up the Utah BDR and then work our way around, meet family, and then connect and do the entire Idaho BDR together from south to north. And then from there, a decision point uh, would be made. My father had to get home around the end of the first month. So he was considering leaving at that point. And then I would do the Washington BDR from from north to south um, and then travel through Oregon and then meet up with my family at some point, link back up in Denver and then drive home. Um, As I've communicated to you in in that, you know, that brief introduction, uh, no, no plan survives first contact. Um, and it certainly didn't. So you mentioned about going on the trip and you, you talked just before that about getting out in the wilderness and sort of spending some time by yourself. Is, mm-hmm. is was this part of what the trip is about for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why, it's, it's still, yeah, it still is. Yes. Okay. So why, why did you choose your dad to go? You have brothers. I'm assuming you have friends. Why choose your dad to go with you? Yeah, well, I think there's probably three or four things there and I'll, I'll quickly move through them. So the first thing is, is, um, well, I just love being around him. I mean, he's, he's incredibly fun to be around. Nice. Um, two, uh, he was really the only person in that season that, that could, could invest the time. And then, um, thirdly, he, uh, um, I knew that he was in a place where uh, it would also be good for him to get out. And then lastly, uh, just to Jim, just the adventure with my dad, right? I mean, like how, you know, and I, and I said this before, like how many dads who've taken a 40, 50, 30, 40 year hiatus from the motorcycle are willing to say, yeah, the dual sport, cool. Um, off road, yeah. Technical, sure. Uh, no experience, yeah. That's me, and uh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> right, let's do it. Yeah, it, it was it, it, what I've learned over the years, and I'm still on my mid thirties. But what I've learned over the years is is that there's a couple different types of fun, right? You you have your normal fun, and then you have what I affectionately refer to as type two fun. Um, that isn't necessarily fun at the time, but is highly fun in retrospect. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about for sure. So he, you go to your dad though. Your dad doesn't have a motorcycle license. You had your motorcycle license. I'm assuming you, you had been riding up till before you left on this trip. Yeah, I had, I, I, I had been riding, but the reality is, is that I had not been back into it that long. Uh, my brother, Christopher, so the company that I work for, Jim, hired all four of my brothers after they hired me, or all three of my brothers after they hired me. Oh, wow. And they all, it, and they all, they're all really hard workers and still with the company right now, but they, um, they, they all came into the Asheville location to further training and onboarding. And so all had the opportunity to work with me 
um, and live near me for a certain season of their lives. And my brother Christopher was also a Marine. And when he lived out in Hawaii, I would have to ask him, but he had a, he had a sport bike and, and, uh, and ultimately here in the mountains, right. When did he get back into it? So we went into Eurosport or not, excuse me, MR motorcycle in, in Asheville, North Carolina. And, uh, and I, we had some trades and so I made him some trades and he bought a bike for me with cash. Uh, and we traded some stuff back and forth that I had that he wanted. And so he bought me a motorcycle and he bought me a 2006 Suzuki, uh, DL 650, the V strong, um, and it had all the luggage on it already. And so I just started, I started riding again and fell in love with it and had a couple buddies locally that rode. And, and so we fell in love with it. And then Jim, as you know, well, that the, the, uh, the passion was on and the horse trading began. So, <laughs> and, and with a large family, uh, we have traded in the past two, two and a half years, we've traded some motorcycles around, but ended up, what we ended up doing is we ended up giving it to my father, uh, the DL650, uh, giving it to my dad, and he still has it to the day, to this day. So, so your, your dad's in his 60s when you approach him about this, this idea to go out on, and, and do this trip. Now, Todd, what was that yes. like for you? What, what, did you just jump up and down and say, yeah, I'm going to go, or did you have to talk about this? We're going to take a quick break, but stay with us. When we come back, we got a lot more to talk about, including some incredible things that they saw while they were on this adventure and how the adventure turns out in the long run. Stay with us. Heidi and David Winters developed through necessity, actually, while they were on their round-the-world trip uh, riding two up. They poured their heart and soul into this. And and in the end, this is something that has changed the lives of, uh, I don't know, countless riders uh, that are they're using the Atlas Throttle Lock now. Now, I remember one time riding across Canada, going through the prairies, and it, w- it was beautiful weather. I mean, everything was great. It was really stunning country to look around. But I mean, it's like you spot a tree. It would take three days to pass the tree. It was that flat. Okay, slightly embellished. But anyway, I remember desperately needing a break from my riding position. There wasn't anything really wrong. I was just tired of being in that riding position and having loads of miles to go that I wanted to cover. I didn't have the Atlas throttle lock. I would have loved to have had it because uh, your throttle hand just gets sort of tired of being in that exact same position mile after mile. Now, I did have another style of lock that frustrated me to no end because it just kept backing off gradually from vibration. So it was was just an exercise in frustration. Well, now I have the Atlas throttle lock and it never fails me. This thing is made like a Swiss watch. It clamps onto your handlebar in a few minutes, but it feels like it was designed for your bike. There's two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. They offer firm, positive feedback when you press them, and there's no mistake about what you're doing with this thing. And when you need to slightly adjust your speed, you just simply twist the throttle, it holds the new position. You wanna slow it down a bit, you back the throttle off, it holds the new position. This thing is a beautiful addition to your motorcycle. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair... The average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you 
are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV1s and ADV2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from cast certified 17.4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warranted for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top of the line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops makes all kinds of lighting products, especially designed for us riders. From auxiliary lighting to LED headlights to specialty things like their Evo safety turn signals. These I love. Um, I have them on my bike. The Evo safety turn signal inserts, um, they, they replace your stock turn signals front and back. And, you know, most most stock to turn signals, they only come on when you put your signal on. They're not actually driving lights. So these become driving lights in the front. They're super bright white driving lights. In the back, they're red. Uh, in the front, they turn orange and become signals when you put your signal on. And in the back, they also signal, but when you they, uh, they signal in red and they come on with your brakes and they are stunningly bright. Like talk about seeing, being seen. These things punch holes through the darkness and they command attention in the daytime. So making drivers aware of you is obviously a huge part of road safety. The Evo safety turn signal inserts. I'm going to give you the website for it. While you're there at the website, have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch auxiliary lights. These little things, these are small enough to fit just about anywhere on any bike because a lot of bikes you have trouble fitting the lights in. These little things will fit in anywhere and they are powerhouses. Great for daytime awareness and stunning on a dark road. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com So your dad's in his 60s when you approach him about this this idea to go out and, and do this trip. Now, Todd, what was that yes. like for you? What, what, did you just jump up and down and say, yeah, I'm going to go? Or did you have to think about this? Or what, how did you feel when he brought this idea to you? Well, he had I had come out to North Carolina and uh, had been riding. So I, I broke my teeth getting back on the bike on the Blue Ridge Parkway. You didn't break them. You cut your teeth. Look, I'm sorry. I cut my teeth. <laughs> and, I, I uh, thought there was more to that. That's what <laughs> yeah. I was going to dig into there. What do you mean you broke your teeth? I, I little, get it. Little, yeah, okay. I cut my teeth on, on the Blue Ridge Parkway, and oh, it, just, it was just, you know, it's indescribable, really. And uh, so I just fell in love with that, and he also had a Honda yeah, Shadow. A Honda, yeah, a Honda Shadow. And I love that bike. It was just, you know, cruising around and and uh, that was fun. So I rode that for a while. And, and I think I actually took that home, didn't I, to Indianapolis, mm-hmm. to Indy, mm-hmm. the, took the, the shadow. And, and uh, so I just started riding and then he introduced me to, you know, hey, let's go off road here in North Carolina. And, and uh, we went off road with some bikes and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh has some challenges. I know I dropped it one. My, the I had the the uh, V Strom, and it had fifty fifty tires on. We went off road, and 
and hit a gully of gravel and threw me going up a hill and yeah, that Jim, that was on. We we had we had decided we were going to get we were going to start the Mid Atlantic BDR. So the trip at that point was over because I, I hurt I hurt my shoulder and uh, still to this day it has some some issues with it. But uh, so I took off from there and and uh, uh, went back to Indiana that day and uh, so that was. But so I, I had a little uh, a dealing with it and really enjoyed it and uh, so. Um, I couldn't handle a V-Strom, you know, out on the, the road. So, uh, out on the back country, I knew that. So he was able to, to get me a Honda 250 and, and, uh, Yamaha, 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 I'm sorry, Yamaha 250. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I used that on the, the trip out West, but, uh, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a really difficult decision. I really, you know, I knew going on something like this, uh, I wasn't the leader, and but I knew Christian, and I knew know that that he has the know-how and experience. Um, so when we get out in the boonies, we won't get lost, and he knows what he's doing. So I trusted him uh, completely, and uh, that helped, uh, you know, spur me on, and and so it was a yes. And, that was, that was it. You mentioned your your wife um, is not keen on riding motorcycles. Does does that come into play for you as well? Uh, it, um, yeah, it does. I mean, I, it's it's just a it's just a difficulty to get over and the hurdle. And uh, um, I don't want to disappoint her. And but I want. Uh, you know, to still be able to enjoy. So we've, she's been very gracious and uh, has uh, uh, allowed me to, to uh, get on the bike and, and ride it and enjoy it. And so it's been, uh, you know, she's, she's working through it, but uh, um, yeah, it's always in the back of my mind. Now, just to, to get the timeline on this, Christian, you bought the bike for your dad before this trip like this this was a while before the trip what sort of timeline is that no so um jim what ended up happening was is is that that crash that he had with jack and i on the mid-atlantic bdr was was a uh really helped me understand that we needed to get him a um a very user-friendly ride for off-road and um the first thing, you know, because what what he was talking about at the time was, is I just like to be able to put my feet down and walk and that type of thing, and and so we we what, what happened was is my good my good friend man I admire him um, his name is Terry he lives out in the country here in Western North Carolina has become a, a real dear friend of mine he he uh, and his wife began riding and he had a. Uh, Yamaha WR250, and then his wife had a Yamaha XT250. And she ended up um, having a motorcycle crash that significantly injured her leg, um, primarily in the knee. And so she's had surgery and is frankly still recovering from that right now. But she decided that she no longer wanted to pursue uh, dual sporting and adventure riding back in the mountains there. And so he had a bike. And the timing was great because it was actually really close to our trip. And so I paid uh, off the bike with cash. And then 
Um, yeah, and it wasn't the right bike, Jim, in retrospect, having, you know, known known what we know now um, and matured a little bit in our, in our but it, it worked. So the two of you set off on this adventure. Can, can you talk about what it looks like? I mean, the bikes, your equipment, that and, and what that all looks like. Sure. So I am on a um, Gen 1, uh, 2005 or 2006. I think it's an 05 uh, KLR 650. And I also bought that from Terry. And I have uh, Dunlop Trail Max Mission tires on there. Um, and I'm outfitted with a giant loop bag. Um, and then the supplemental larger bag that uh, Giant Loop makes. The great, I have the Great Basin bag and then their larger one um, that goes on the back. And so that's what I'm riding with. And Jim, I don't mean to do this, but a shameless plug here for the, the pearly possum socks. Um, I, I will tell you and anybody who has not decided to buy five or six or seven pairs of those, um, they are without question the best socks on the planet. So yeah. Um, I'm done there. But anyway, I wasn't quite sure, Jim, because I, uh, I don't know about this. And then I bought two pair and then I bought a pair for everybody in my family. Um, yeah, they're amazing. They're, Just incredible. Yeah. So, so set out with two pairs of those and, uh, which I see is, is, uh, um, required, required kit for any great adventure now. And then for my father's bike key, and by the way, my, my bike stock, right. I haven't done any of the major, um, upgrades to it. The, the previous owner did the doohickey conversion which uh, we can come back to later, which is why it went home um, the way it did. But um, And then my father is on a, a Yamaha XT250. He has the Giant Loop Coyote bag, the smaller version of the Great Basin, and also the, the smaller version of the supplemental bag in the back. We're carrying two tents, uh, adequate sleeping bags, um, 2.5 days supply of food, um, enough water to support us with water filtration, a saw, fire starting material, a tire inflator, comprehensive medical or medical kit, um, a mechanics kit, and spare tubes for all four tires. Um, and so that's really what the bikes looked like when we start off on our journey from Aurora or really Denver, Colorado, uh, to begin the to begin our expedition. You're leaving Denver and you're going right into the mountains, into trails? Yeah. So one of the challenges when I looked at getting through Denver, especially with considering the XT250, and by the way, both of these bikes were geared stock, just so you know. So, um, so they're, you know, they're not, they're not, especially the XT250 is not going to really open up there on the highways. But the challenge for us was, is to get over the mountains, we really had to take the interstate to cut through them. It was the most expeditionary route to get through without getting on technical terrain at, at high elevations uh, and the like. So what we ended up doing was cutting through the mountains uh, on the interstate and then quickly linking up with the middle, of, I think it's the middle of section five of the Colorado BDR. And then from there took the Colorado BDR all the way to the border. Mm. So pretty quick into, into the off-road stuff. Uh, Todd, do you have any reservations about riding off-road with this, this XT250? Or did you at the time? I I did, and I really didn't know what to expect because this was really uh, my first extensive time, you know, doing a BDR. That, but I, I found that 250, uh, for me, was almost the ideal bike. I think uh, moving up to a 300 rally would probably be 
uh, the perfect bike for me. But uh, the 250 was, uh, uh, for me, it was very a very reassuring ride and i gained a lot of confidence because i could you know i could move the bike i could put my feet down if i needed to and and uh so uh, for an inexperienced rider it was uh it was a great off-road it had had its limitations when we got out into uh, wyoming and idaho and you, you know you're out on pavement and out in the middle of nowhere the winds just buffet you really uh, uh, quite a bit, and uh, being on the 250, especially going up hills uh, on the road, uh, just uh, wouldn't get up to speed for me. And I'm a I'm a heavy, uh, fairly heavy guy. Oh, but you're handsome. Uh, handsome, but heavy. <laughs> and uh, um, but and so it was uh, just didn't have the horsepower to uh, move me through that wind uh, like I needed. I think if I was on a 300 rally. I think I, it would be uh, probably perfect for me. One of the one of the things I didn't consider, Jim, and, and I consider myself a a very good and detailed planner, um, is I didn't consider rider weight, wind buffeting, and how that was going to significantly affect our fuel range. Mm. Um, we, you, if you if you look at any of the photos that I shared with you, my good buddy. Um, man, he is a jack of all trades. What a fantastic guy. I ended up selling him the KLR650 in pieces. Um, he, he and I welded on uh, a fuel tanks um, to the side of the KLR650 for me. It made it a lot heavier, but we would have been in big, big trouble without those two gallons of fuel. I'm right. Yeah. Big yeah. trouble. Yeah. yeah. So hang, you, you welded gas tanks on? Is, is this a, a gas can that you welded on? We had a dirt dirt tracks or dirt racks um, um, roll, roll bar cage for the KLR650 for the Gen 1. And I'm embarrassed. I can't remember that manufacturer's name. They do quality products. And uh, and then what we ended up doing was is taking um, one, well, it was like one quarter inch thick and then about an, an, an inch and a half wide uh, steel and welding it onto the the dirt tracks, I think, rack. And then from there, created a mounting solution for two roto packs. Oh, I so see. They, yeah, so they effectively just joined up to up to the side of the roll bar cages. I ended up um, kicking my bike into neutral going up that really steep hill. If you're coming from north to south through Utah, towards the very end of the Utah BDR, there's a really steep hill after you come underneath a bridge. Um, and a, a rock came up and kicked, kicked me into neutral and, uh, and I ended up falling backwards with the bike and it landed kind of, it came back at me, but then somehow twisted and landed on its side and I destroyed one of the roto packs. But, um, but it was, it was, a, it was a decent solution. The 05 KLR650 comes with, I think, a 23-liter tank. You, you get a lot of fuel on there to begin with. Now, I'm assuming the fuel that, that you have extra was going for both bikes. Yeah, I based upon my mileage calculations, and, and the only place that I was really concerned was when we left the Colorado BDR and did our own route over to connect with the um, Utah BDR. And that was where my fuel consumption had me with about 50 miles range. I was going to be right on the edge of my reserve and all of our external fuel tanks used. Um, 
And so we ended up using, right? Using them both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we ended up using them both. Um, and we ran out of fuel in Utah. Yeah. And right on the edge of that road. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. And we filled up both tanks. And my buddy Jack told me it was a stupid idea. And then I took a picture of it with my pointing at it with a fairly belligerent face and texted it to him the second I got reception. It's quite a load. It sounds like you guys had, you know, overall with all the extra fuel and you, and your gear and in, in particular with the 250. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think so just, just from all the adventure we've done, we, we have developed a significant amount of high quality gear that you can, uh, that we can pick and choose from. And so bike packing tents from, um, from the manufacturer in Colorado, highly capable sleeping bags that are really light. So his, his XT250 was really light. Now, my bike was not um, because I was carrying two gallons of extra fuel. I had all the camping equipment. I had all the mechanical. I had all the extra engine oil and all that. So I was not light. But knowing my dad's speeds, uh, I wasn't overly concerned, um, A, about the technicality of the terrain and and B, working through that. So because I... Jim, I had been on a leader bike before that. It was a it was a 2020 Suzuki uh, 1050 XT with Gibby side panniers, and so I was used to lugging around a really heavy load just from being on a leader bike. So coming back down to a 650, and it was fine. Yeah, it was good. Off road, the KLR. I mean, if you left it stock, which you said you did, you've got um, mm-hmm. a fairly high first gear. With that, the XT two fifty's got a really low first gear. What was that like riding together off road? Was there a lot of stop and catch up? <laughs> Do you, well, Christian. I mean, Christian could leave me uh, sitting in my. Uh, you know, he he could he can ride, and I I can. I slowed him down a lot, and I think that was uh, created some some frustration and learning from both of us. You know, me how to to, uh, you know, speed up a little bit and do it under control and, and not out of my, my, my zone and, um, uh, which I did on some parts and, uh, other parts I, you know, I wasn't that confident and, uh, so my speed was, was down. So that was a little frustrating, I think for Christian. Uh, well, dad, I think the big thing is, is that, and, and I don't have the science to back this up, but I, it is a, it, it, from my experience, is a definitive truth that when you are going faster on some of this terrain, you are safer. Yes. It be, the, the front end isn't going to bite as much. And, you, and, and I think, Jim, that was the big frustration. It's like, I know that by going a little bit faster, not reckless, not irresponsible, but by going faster, you're able to move over this terrain in a way that, that almost decreases risk. And so I, I just but trying to communicate that to him. Um, I didn't do it well, and I didn't do it in love. And uh, and we had a couple moments. Well, we had a couple other son moments. It was fun. But, well, what does that look you know. like? Uh, well, one of them looks like me deleting a video. Um, so I took a significant amount of video of him from behind, um, just holding my phone, um, because I had a bit more range. Um, with the 650, I didn't have to shift around. And I, I mean, I took one time, I took a six minute video behind you mm-hmm. and, uh, and then we slow down 
so much that I can't get my phone put away, and then I crash into you. And we're going around a, a curve, and and I came up on a high side, slowed down, and and uh, so he's his he's videoing me with and driving with one hand, and it just didn't end up very well. It didn't end well, and I, I, this is how badly it ended up, Jim. Uh, I deleted the video and didn't share it with anybody. Um, because I did not say some very nice things as I was falling to the ground. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, but <laughs> that's funny. But what? But really, I, I think Jim, where, where it caused friction was, was, you know, when you bring your when you bring an ego on a motorcycle, um, both just riding yourself um, or. You have to, the, the great thing about the motorcycle is you have to check your ego at the door and it becomes less about you and, and it becomes more about the journey and the experience. And, uh, and, and, and Jim, honestly, you know, when you look at like the Enneagram and you look at, you know, your personality types and what, what your personality, how your personality manifests itself when you're healthy and you're unhealthy, right? I mean, this is the crux of the issue. My dad is healthy and I wasn't. And, and so I'm responding to the stress in, in, a, in an unhealthy way. And I'm, I'm driving friction between us um, when I could be showing love and um, being patient and kind and respectful and really understanding and listening and trying to better influence through good. I'm being angry and condescending and the comments are bad. And, uh, and, and I, I, and I, in many ways, drive a wedge. The beautiful thing about it, Jim, is I have a father who's patient, who's kind, who's respectful and loving and slow to speak and slow to anger. And, uh, and, and we were able to reconcile. So, um, when you're talking about healthy, you're talking mind wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Just being, just being, just being healthy. Your personality's healthy, right? Sure. Your, your, your imbalance and, and you're manifesting the beauty of your personality. And, and I wasn't, and I was, I, frankly, I was a jerk. So, um, I was a jerk and Todd, is that right? Oh, dude, it's, be honest. I, I will be honest from, I don't, I don't, uh, take that perspective. I, I know Christian and I know he is, uh, he's a type A personality and he's high strung. And, and, um, um, so I, know that and i don't take it personally and uh um, that doesn't most, mean i wasn't unhealthy well no i yeah you, just say the it. communication could have been a little bit better but it's terrible but he's my son and you know i love him and forgive him before they even have to ask and so it's just so just learn with it but a lot you know even when they communicate and and those ways a lot of what he says is true and so i tried to learn i tried to grow you know as i was riding on the bike and and there were places that you know one i remember one time you told me dad you're going too slow and i took off you did take off and you said you had a difficult time keeping up with me (laughs) and it wasn't it wasn't easy terrain either we're gonna need to get lawyers yeah And uh, so, you know, it's just, I, I was a, this was a great learning experience for me and, you know, invaluable to me. And uh, I, I did, I, I didn't look at his 
communication as a negative. I tried to learn from it and grow and, and, you know, I had one of the richest and best times of my life. So I don't, uh, I wouldn't say anything negative about Christian. Now, is is this something that's sort of seething throughout the whole trip or when you get to camp, do do you sort of debrief and and let it go? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. immediately let go. Uh, you know, when it was done, I, when Christian communicates sometimes and it's pretty abrupt and strong, then, you know, I know that a lot of it's just out of love and, and, uh, but yet, um, when he communicates, it's like, we got it out, we're done and let's move on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say, Jim, that I think that we did a good job of respecting boundaries and, and healthfully pushing those like I, I one there it's fascinating i ended up so we went from north or south to north through sections five and six of the utah bdr i ended up coming back through section six and five part of five on my own and the trail was transformed i mean they had brought machinery through there it completely transformed the trail but any time that we came up against a legitimate obstacle say like highly technical terrain, um, um, we did a good job of walking it, assessing risks, um, talking through it, helping each other, wading into high streams to make sure that we had the right line. So during the major points of friction, right, the, the good communication and teamwork were there. I think it was just the crux of it was we were just going so slow. And, and, um, I didn't have a plan. I I, I knew that we kind of wanted to go here, but there was no, we have to get from here to here today. And if we don't get it, it's mission failure. There was none of that. It was just, um, it was a lot of opportunity for me to take pictures because I like to stop and see the scenery (laughs) and just enjoy, you know, smell the roses along the way, so to speak. And it was so awe-inspiring to me, you know, to see our country and how beautiful it is. And and, uh, I I like to just stop on the ridges and look and soak it all in and take a few breaths and and, uh, then move on. But Christians... I like to shred the gnar. Shred the gnar. (laughs) And uh, so that was... uh, you know, I created a lot of tension doing that, and um, um, so it's you live and learn. I forgive you. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> what great things did you guys experience on this trip? Yeah. Go first. What do you think? Uh, you know, Jim, I think uh, I took away, uh, I think, three things that really have impacted me uh just being able to spend time with your children and with your family you know we hooked up with his wife amanda and and their three children uh, a few times as we were on the route and just being able to enjoy your children and their families is is to me it's a gift and um I just, uh, so, you know, and I cherish those times. I don't know if there's anything that I'd rather do than spend time with my family and enjoy them and just get to know them more. And, and, um, so that, that takeaway is, um, I'm very grateful for that. And secondly, I think just, uh, 
you know, I walked away with a greater appreciation for creation and the beauty of this country. And it was just, um, I don't know if this is too vulnerable or not, but there were a few times on this trip that I was riding my bike and I was so overwhelmed with the beauty and what, what I was experiencing that tears were just flow down my face when I was riding and um, because it was so beautiful and just uh, I was just in awe and so we live in a great country and it's just uh, amazingly beautiful and just being able to experience it was uh, was uh, amazing and the next the last thing that I walked away with was the people in this great country uh just amazing people that will, uh, you know, go a second mile to help you and that are so kind and thoughtful and generous. And, and, um, I don't know if we, you know, we were, I was coming back and maybe we'll get to this, but I was coming back cross country by myself on the KLR 650 and, um, first gear was gone. And so I was nursing at home and, uh, I was in Missouri and flying down a highway, and then all of a sudden it was like I, I wasn't going anywhere. That I was revving the engine and it was was you know revving up, and I but I was stopping and uh, pulled off the road and, and discovered that my chain had blown off, uh, and so I was just sitting there on a highway calling Christian who was. Dealing with, I think you were, were you dealing with COVID at the time? Yeah, I was just starting that. I had just left the hospital. And mm-hmm. so I was saying, hey, Christian, I'm stranded on the road. I need some help. And and he was doing his best to try to get somebody out there. He eventually did get somebody out there to, to haul the bike into a, a city. But um, a rider on a motorcycle who was coming back from a, a rally somewhere out of state, I think, stopped by the road on the highway and said hey brother you need some help what's going on and i said yeah i lost my chain and he said uh give me 15 minutes and i'll I'll be back to help you he got his family came back and took me to the city where they were going to haul the bike and dropped me off and made sure i was okay and had everything i need so i i went to a hotel uh, I think I forget which city is it, it was. Macon, 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 Missouri, Macon, Missouri. Yeah, and went to a hotel, and and so there was one gentleman who gave up his time to help me, uh, and then I went to this hotel, and when I got in the hotel, I went across the street to try to find somebody who could help me get the chain back on my bike. I'm not mechanically inclined and I wouldn't know how to do it. So, um, but I went across to the gas station and lo and behold, the girl that runs the gas station, her father is a motorcycle mechanic, worked on motorcycles his entire life. And I said, is there any way that he'd be willing to help me? And sure enough, the next day, he brought his trailer uh, over to the gas station, I 
pushed my bike over there. Well, I actually dropped it off there that night. And he put his, the bike on the trailer, took it down, uh, you know, a couple miles away and installed the chain for me. And then I was on my way back to Indiana. And you just meet people like that. And I just was, you know, I was just humbled, really, that um, to see, uh, you know, the people in the United States that are so kind and helpful and thoughtful. And, and uh, so those are some of the three big things I took away with me. It's pretty interesting that in a in a time where everyone's talking about division, you know, where people are being divided, and they are. I mean, people are being, you know, acting mm-hmm. very divided in some some areas. But with motorcycling, and we see this all the time. We hear this all the time uh, on the on the show. We we see it when we're out here riding. It's amazing how that one common thing can pull us all together. And it just shows. I mean, Kristen, you'd said it before about how that when you were in the military that. The, the people stood side by side, even if you had differences and you stood by side by side and you supported everyone. That's what we do with motorcycling. Wouldn't it be great if everyone just did that anyway and said, yeah, well, okay, we're, we're different. We've all got things that are different, but you know, it's st- the whole population, if they stood side by side like that, like motorcyclists do. Yeah. It would be a special. Yeah. Special it would. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. You guys rode with wild horses. Talk about that. Yeah, we did. We rode with wild horses a few times. In fact, so Jim, what we ended up doing was we ended up, uh, it was a significant navigational challenge. And I would encourage anybody who wants to leave the Colorado BDR and try to make their way over to say, connect to the Northern end of the Utah BDR to really give that, that oil and gas kind of no man's land in Southwestern Wyoming, as you leave bags, Wyoming, and then head up, or really head generally north and then due west through these fields, it, it's going to require a significant, a significant effort in navigation um, because a lot of the roads that um, are shown uh, don't exist. A lot of the roads that don't exist, uh, or I, I'm going to fall over my words there. It's just that it's a highly complex navigational requirement and you got to be, you got to be quick on your feet and use multiple inputs. But if you can do it, it's unbelievable because it kind of gets you into this weird terrain where you're, you're, you know, you, you're riding on a trail, but you're not really sure. And then you got to re-grab it a lot. But what's out there is, is that there is a significant wildlife population out there mm. from wild elk to uh, a, a assortment of birds and, and antelope um, um, and foxes and rabbits and, and, but a ton of wild horses and, you'll come over the crest of, of say, uh, not a butte, but uh, just a small hill, right, that provides defilade from the other side from an observation perspective, and you're right on top of wild horses. And certainly the motorcycles spook them in some ways, but at the same time, I, I almost get a sense, Jim, and I don't want to be weird here, but you almost get a sense like they want to run with you. Like it's, they, they create separation, to where you can you can clearly tell that they feel safe but they never they ran with us they ran with us yes mm-hmm. and, and and so one time that sticks out there was um and i i i could show you on a map but we were in the middle of nowhere and that uh wyoming kind of wyoming um 
no man's land. And we, we came up and there was just this enormous expanse. And I'll tell you, Jim, I've, I've been in some weird places before in my travels, but that section of Wyoming is almost overwhelming in terms of its vastness. It, it almost, it's almost worse than being in a boat in the middle of the ocean. You just feel like you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like it is just, it, it just, it's it, the vastness and it to me was overwhelming, but we came, we came up and just in, in a little knoll, a little, uh, a little knoll was horses and they ran directly in front of us, right? Mm-hmm. Directly in front of us and then moved across the road uh, at a perpendicular angle to us for call it 7,500 yards. And then they turned left and followed us and we rode with them for a long time. Yeah. That yeah, was special. Like minutes. Was, oh, minutes. I mean, I have minutes of video footage shot from my phone. Is that right? Of, wow. them, of them riding with us. And, and you could tell it was, I don't know if it was like competition, if they saw it as competition or if they saw it as, um, I, it, it, it was not, they were running with us, Jim. It, it they were, was. They were showing off. They, they were. were so, it was almost like they were showing off. They were so beautiful and strong. Yeah. It was just. Uh, and they're running right with you. They're keeping up with your speed. Oh, Absolutely. They were ahead of us. They really oh, yeah. were ahead yeah. of us. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Wyoming was probably not the most challenging from a riding standpoint, mm-hmm. but I think it was uh, one of the most uh, spectacular. I mean, we it, you know we came across uh, uh, what was it, about five bull elk. Yeah, and these these, I mean, they were massive. Their shoulders had to be five feet high, and uh, just beautiful, magnificent animals. And and the antelope, you know, herds of antelope would run, and they would run across the path right in front of you. And and uh, it was just, uh, yeah, the wildlife in in Wyoming was really so unexpected too, because you get up there, you gain the ridge. The plateau, maybe I don't, and then you're like, oh my lord, we are in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, and then the wildlife was more abundant there than anywhere else on the trail until mm-hmm. we saw the grizzly bear up close mm-hmm. in Grand Tetons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're camping the whole yeah. time. No, well, so <clears throat> um, Jim, not the whole time. Um, I realized. For, you know, I knew that camping every night was going to, was going to wear my father out. Um, and even though we had top of the line gear, sleeping on the ground, when you haven't slept on the ground, it's almost its own discipline. It, you know, it requires the body to kind of readjust. And so we, we bounce back and forth quite a bit. Mm. Um, it's also age. <laughs> as you get yeah, older, okay. the ground okay. seems to get harder and lumpier. And, yeah. and I swear gravity yeah. has increased as, as I've gotten older. Yeah. So, so what other what other incredible things did you see, did you see on this trip? Well, the Grand Tetons. The Grand me. Tetons. I've never been out there yeah. it, at the Grand Tetons. That was spectacular. We swam. I don't know what lake it was, but we so went down. I can't remember. Crawled down the side of the the hill, and and uh, we all went swimming in this beautiful. I mean, huge lake, and it was just spectacular. And um, um, yeah. I remember we were out. I don't know where it was, but it was that double site camp mm-hmm. campsite that mm-hmm. we 
rented, and, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But uh, it was by a, a, a lake, and, and uh, just at night, the seeing the the stars, and and uh, I got up early the following morning, had a cup of coffee, took my camping chair, sat out by the lake, and was adoring the stars. And uh, then the sun slowly came up, and and they weren't they aren't geese. What are they? I believe they're loons. Loons were yeah. singing, and and uh, the moon was out, and uh, it was just uh, again one of those moments that almost felt surreal, and uh, just uh, enjoying the magnificent um, creation, and uh, just that was uh, that was very spectacular for me. And uh, I really enjoyed the 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 rocks and I mean the you know the the it seemed like the most difficult part of the writing was was the the best for me. I mm-hmm. mean the rocky terrain and going uphill and going downhill and learning how to navigate that and and uh, we were is it was it in Idaho uh, but that we would I mean one day we went up and and we were. Um, it was very mountainous, a lot of climbing, and no room for air because two feet off the side was sheer drop off. Mm-hmm. And we were on rocky paths, and and if you took your mind off of what you were doing, you could easily uh, be off the side. And um, it was, but it was challenging, and I, I really enjoyed those parts of the ride yeah. riding. So, Jim, the, two one thing that he the place that he's talking about is after you come out, I think one of the highest points on the Idaho BDR, and descend. Well, they they had had some serious wildfires come through there, and there was about uh, let's under exaggerate and call it a 32nd, maybe more like an eighth of an inch of soot on the ground. And I don't know if it's from dirt they dropped or if it's, if it's from um, maybe the process of the forest burning or whatever, but the traction on the tires was awful during this descent because anytime you applied brake rear brake, it almost initiated a, 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 the back end to kick out because there was really just nothing to grab onto. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're trying to manage the descent. It was sketchy. <laughs> and on those 50, 50 tires I was on, I was not pleased. But, well, and Todd, what you're saying is it's like the, the best section. Is that in hindsight or was that at the time? Yeah. No, it's type two fun. Oh yeah. It was at the time it was, it was very challenging, but it was fun. And yeah. When you're done, you sort of, you, you love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when we got done, we were in a parking lot. And actually, Amanda and the and the kids were there uh, that evening, and uh, it was like, Christian, did we just do that? Was that? Yeah. And it was yeah. like, wow, that was that was really amazing. And uh, Jim, the, the photos that I gave you, if you were to go look at that, I shared with you all. If you were to go look at those photos, there's one where you're like, man, these guys are kind of, it's a, it's just a shot of us with our bikes. And you're like, man, these guys are kind of intense. Like, I don't like, I don't don't know if I'd like to talk to those guys. Well, what he's talking about is that photo was taken right after we had come off that day of riding. And it was, number one, it was a type two fun day and where it's fun in retrospect. 
And the second thing was, is that it was, uh, it was, it was a burly, burly day. So I love the type two fun thing. I've learned something new today. That's great. That's a good reference for it. Christian, you said, um, then it all fell apart at one point. How how did it all fall apart? Yeah, well, I, we, we had come through, um, we had come through, uh, on the Idaho BDR and we're coming in, uh, making our way into the Featherville pine area. And, uh, I came around the corner on this, what I, I don't, I call it three, two, three track gym. It's like, it's, it's like three lanes wide and it was a pristinely kept road. You remember that road? Mm-hmm. Yes. In hard packed, hard packed dirt, really, I mean, just beautiful. But I came around a corner and there were six inches of sand in the corner. And by the time I realized I was in it, I was, I was, uh, I was on my way over the handlebars and, uh, I broke off the front. I mean, I sheared off the windscreen, mangled the cowling, but something Jim happened to the bike. Now we would, we would get the bike home and completely split the engine case and, so I'll, t- I'll, I'll give this story quickly and in reverse. So me and Sam are um, creating a YouTube video series on restoring a KLR650. And at the very end, when we split the case, uh, as we start to split the case, we hear a tink. On, we were working on a metal bench and we heard a tink mm-hmm. and, it, and, and, and went over and found the piece. And it, and it looked like a piece of the spring from the original doohickey. Um, you know, that, that little tensioning spring there, right. That, that pulls tension on the, on the device, which gets into the, to the, um, um, the balancer timing chain. Um, but, but anyways, when we heard that tank and saw that piece of metal, we put the bike, we put the engine back together quickly, grabbed a couple different sets of vice grips and manipulated the gearing and, and, and then it worked. So, um, that engine's in the process of being restored right now. Um, we, it's getting bored out and we're going to put a, a bigger piston in there. What would it happen talking to the previous owner, Terry? Um, evidently it had, it had, it had sheared off, um, and, and they replaced it with the upgraded one from, um, from Eagle Mike. Right. And so, so going back to the original story, right. Knowing what the end problem was now, how it made it up into that part of the engine and stopped, you know, cause the, the KLR 650 has those, the three shifting forks and, and the, the, they have the lower second, third really. And then, and then fourth and fifth, the lower one was jammed up. And so what happened was, is that after that accident happened, um, we, I started to see some degradation in my shifting between first and neutral and then back down from second to neutral. It just, it started to misbehave a little bit. This, this is after you tumbled with the bike. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Before that. Perfect. After that, it, it's, it, it, we were having issues. So mm-hmm. it ended up, uh, we continued on no problem. Um, we take off and, uh, we're in section, what I call three and a half of the, of the, uh, Idaho BDR. And two things are happening. Number one, my engine is bleeding oil at about a quarter quart a day. And so I had to divert back to civilization to get more engine oil because I just didn't have enough. And the second thing was, is there was a storm that was coming in on the north side of Idaho that included snow. 
And so we just went back to civilization to, uh, to try to reassess what was going on. Um, we were able to get engine oil. Um, and what we decided was is that we were going to divert away from that storm and start heading back south. So we, we ended up getting on pavement from there and making our way over, uh, over on beautiful pavement over to really the other side of Idaho, um, just about two hours northeast of Pocatello. And then, Jim, as we started to make our way towards the other side of Idaho to really reconsider our options and kind of rest and refit, um, I, I started to have some serious issues with, uh, with my bike shifting up and down in the first gear. We crawled into the hotel. Do you remember that, Dad? We crawled into the yeah. hotel, and yeah. it was really at that point that I had lost first gear completely. Yeah. Um, and so being that the KLR is kind of arguably geared high, um, I would argue, I don't know if you would disagree with that, Jim. I think, no, I think it is. First gear, you mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, it, so when you don't have a usable first gear and second gear is kind of high already, it was very challenging to, to manipulate. And, and what I realized quickly was, is that we were not going to, I was not going to be able to stay on technical terrain with just second gear. It just wasn't going to oh, happen. Yeah. So, so from there, we made our way to Pocatello, Idaho. We came into town and I was going to try to find someone who would, uh, uh, help repair the KLR 650. And I, I, I was a little surprised by this, Jim, but nobody, none of them wanted to work on a first generation KLR. Um, <laughs> Why not? Uh, that's a good question. They, they just, I don't know if it was from a time, per, you know, a time perspective or a costing perspective, or they just didn't want to take on that body of work without, without short notice. Um, but they were very he- not not. I'm trying. I'm not going to say the name of these shops. But they were not only were they not hesitant, they refused to work on the Gen One KLR 650. Huh. So, and I don't know if they just didn't have the staff. I, I have a hard time believing that. I mean, it's such an e- fairly easy. Well, was it, was it the Gen One 650, or or was it the issue? Because I mean, you you've got to split the engine. There's there's pretty much no getting around it. it was that what was concerning them? It may have been, although I don't think that they, that, you know, I told them what the problem was and I don't think they, I don't think they really could, we're, we're going to diagnose it. And what I got a sense was, is, mm. Hey, cool. You guys are on a trip. That's fun. Um, we've got existing clients in the local area and we've got to really take care of them. Uh, nice. and so it was fairly, it was, it was fairly dismissive. You know, the, the level of uh, intensity that I like to approach problems with uh, was not being reciprocated, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, hey, we really don't have time. We don't like working on these older machines, um, you know, and, and they did not put me in front of what I would consider like highly skilled mechanics. It was the it was the guys, younger guys who were just going to who were just going to uh, to do it from there. So, yeah, he found a KTM dealer and. And uh, we talked, and uh, he decided to get a, a, a KTM 790 and uh, trade in the Yamaha 250. And I was going to, we decided that I would uh, take the, the uh, KLR and nurse it back to Indiana and he was going to continue on. 
So this was to to cure the problem with the 650. You were getting rid of the 250, or how, how does that yes. sort of cure it? Yeah. No. Well, it. Yeah, he was. He got. He got the KTM so he could continue on his journey uh, on the BDR oh, I see. BDR routes, and uh, he was going to use that bike to uh, traverse. And he wanted to keep the uh, the KLR and uh, get it fixed. And uh, so. Yeah, we just and it was time for me to get back. I just yeah. uh, had some obligations that I needed to to get back home, and uh, so I, you know, we decided to uh, that I would ride the KLR back east, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. So what I did, Jim, was I, I and the other thing was it was a cash flow issue. We didn't, and I had to have a long conversation with Amanda. I didn't want to go into a lot of debt just buying a new motorcycle and scrapping the KLR 650. Mm-hmm. The, the, the big thing, Dad, right, was was that we the lesson we had learned so far was is that you really didn't want to travel back across the country on the XT 250. No, no. And, especially out on, I mean, I'm going to yeah, be on, on, on interstate, open roads going across the east and, and uh, the winds out there yeah. were... were yeah, they were significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Jim, the winds were so bad at times that my KLR650, um, because the winds were coming almost at a directly perpendicular angle to the uh, radiator, I I couldn't get my KLR650 to cool down. I I would have to literally turn stop and turn it and let it cool down in the wind and then carry on. I mean, the oh, winds wow. were brutal. They wow. they were brutal for us. And so what what did so my dad took one for the team and, uh, and then Jim, you know, what was exciting was, is I was going to have that opportunity to kind of be by myself and, and deal with some of this stuff. And, uh, that, you know, that I needed just to hash out my own life, uh, to be a better father, to be a better husband, um, to be better at work and just realign, you know, what my priorities were. And, and I ended up talking to one of my mentors, Steve, uh, down in Arizona, and so I made my own plan and I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to head down through, uh, I'm going to leave Pocatello and dad left. I stayed one more night in the hotel and then I was going to point, point the ship, uh, do almost due South, take part of the Utah BDR South. And then from there, uh, take my own route through the grand, uh, the grand staircase Escalante and some beautiful pavement down to do the Arizona BDR and then outside of Phoenix, I would link up with him, and then we would reunite. From there, I'd travel back across the country, and I'd have about a month off still. Um, <clears throat> and so, Dad took off on the KLR 650, and we traded in the XT 250, which significantly lowered my KTM payment, and uh, and uh, would give me some equity in it in, in the event that I wanted to sell it when I when I got home. And mm-hmm. and so. Um, so I took off out of Pocatello, Idaho, and uh, it was interesting because, you know, this is October of 2019, right? 2020? Late September, I believe. Yeah, late September. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the big thing was, this, and Jim, this is actually really interesting, and, you know, you talk about force protection, right? Um, and force protection is a big word, but when you, you think about protecting yourself during, you know, a COVID-19 environment, um uh, and I've listened to a lot of your podcasts where people are doing it, which, which is really interesting. I, I made some real big mistakes. Number one, I took public transportation uh, several different places because I, the motorcycle shop was across town. And what I should have done instead was I should have had the motorcycle shop just I should have paid them to to 
help me back and forth and transit back and forth as opposed to taking public transportation. Oh, that's right. Cause you think that's where you got yeah. COVID. Oh, it, it absolutely has to be. Yeah. yeah. From a timing perspective and, and listening to, you know, infection rates as, as opposed to presentation rates and breakthrough right. cases and stuff like that. I, I have a hard time believing I got it anywhere else other than that, because we were very, I mean, the, the meals we ate before that, we, we were not near people at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime we interacted with people, it was outside where transmission rates were a lot lower. So, um, but anyway, I, I started in on the section six of the Utah BDR. Now, for context, it took my dad and I about nine hours, eight and a half, nine hours to complete that section. It took me four, three and a half, four hours by myself. Mm-hmm. And so, but boy, it was a beautiful ride. And what I did was, Jim, is I was like, I was getting ready to go camping and, and it was funny because I said, you know, I, I just don't think I want to deal with, I don't, I don't want to start, I don't want to start dealing with this stuff tonight. Um, so I shot the, I pointed the nose of the bike towards uh, Evanston, Wyoming, and I woke up that next morning and I could feel it. And I was like, oh dear, I'm getting sick. And, uh, and, but I, I had to carry on. So I, I, I carried on because it just felt like tightness in my chest. You know, um, and so I carried on, uh, went through the Utah BDR and, um, and as I was coming into Heber city, Utah, um, or down towards the uh, kind of adjacent to Salt Lake city, I had a speaking engagement on leadership at the Wasatch high school there in, uh, in, um, in, on the Wasatch range there in, in outside of Salt Lake city with uh, a gentleman that I had met on an international flight back to the United States and we developed a friendship. And so that speaking engagement was uh, the following day, but that day I, I, that next day I started to feel really bad in my hotel room. Um, And, and so I ended up going to the hospital there in Heber city, Utah and, uh, and got a a, a rapid PCR and and had a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. And so, I, which I was a little surprised about because it was a bit of a breakthrough case. Um, but the really what that did was, is that that kind of, uh, it put me in a hotel room, um, which was my only option. I mean, I didn't have anywhere to go, Jim. Like, what was I going to do? I felt terrible. I had, I had a fever. It, it just, I, so I parked it in a hotel room and didn't leave it for 10 days, but but what was interesting was, and this all goes back to my dad, was for some reason, and I don't understand why, my symptoms were relatively light, um, which is a good thing. And I think, you know, everything that, that we did uh, helped the symptoms be light, but it affected me neurologically um, badly. And I have talked to other people that have had COVID and, and had those similar experiences where it, it affected them neurologically. And yeah, what that means for me is... Yeah. I was dealing with anxiety that I had never experienced in my entire life. Like I, I wasn't sure whether or not to go check myself in and not suicide or anything like that. It was just, I couldn't, I couldn't keep it together mentally. And so after my uh, CDC required quarantine period, I started heading home and uh, I made it to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And, um, And in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I hit the absolute rock bottom I've ever been in in my entire life where I was, I literally, I called my father and I said, dad, I can't do this on my own. I cannot make it home. 
and, uh, and I need your help. And so <laughs> he too, what a dude, he, he got in his car that same day and I started driving towards him and he started driving towards me and we met on the border of Iowa and somewhere. Anyway, we met right almost on the, the, the Western section of the Iowa, um, the Iowa border. And he stayed in a adjacent hotel from me. And we were, I was trying to be very, very careful. Um, even though I was outside the CDC period uh, for quarantine, I just, I wasn't sure. And so I was trying to be really careful. And uh, so he stayed in an adjacent hotel. And then um, we switched the following day and he drove my bike back to Indiana and I drove uh, the car back. And Jim, I, I will tell you, I have been through some very difficult experiences, um, most of them in the Marine Corps. And I don't think I've ever pushed my body and mind that hard in my life. Um, I, it, it's almost, and having been through it and gone out the backside, you're like, what in the world happened there? And it, the, neurologically, it was the strangest thing. It was like, it just barely hold it together. Um, but anyway, so he came and got me and, uh, and that was it, you know, and I thought about continuing the journey after quarantine, but, um, Jim, the hotel was, there was only availability at one hotel and it was two, it was $230 a night. Jeez. And so you can do some math there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just, I ran out of money. Wow. You were there for 10 days. Yeah, I was actually, I think 11 days, something like that. But I, I, wow. I ended up, um, I ended up, um, running through all of my cash. And, and the, the reality was, is that a man and the kids were on their own separate journey. And I think about that time they were at a desperation point in Oregon. And so, you know, I didn't want to take from their trip. And so, um, I ended up just making a, a beeline back, but you know, I, <clears throat> my dad, the beautiful thing about him is, is that even though he owns his own company and even though he's under an immense amount of stress, right. And what I wrote in the, in the pitch and, and it, right. Is that there is very few people that would drop what they have to go come get you at a moment's notice, but not out asking questions and are just there for you. And I think, I think that that's my dad, right? I mean, that's why I want to be around him from your question a while ago. It's just like, you want people like him around because they make you a better human being. And when they, when you're, when you're at your worst, right, they're healthy enough to be at their best and they're able to see through it and they're able to, to walk you through it and, and love you in spite of that. And, you know, I think about the amount of people that don't have somebody like that in their life. Um, I feel badly for him. And so, you know, the fact that he would come back and, and uh, quite literally rescue me um, meant a lot. Um, you know, and that's why we have unfinished business is, is that we've, we've got to go back and we've got to finish the Idaho BDR. Um, I've got to get out in nature. And, and, and although I've done a great job, I mean, I, I've, I've got to reconcile some stuff and, and, uh, 
you know, and become a better father and a better husband and a, and a better leader and, and more patient with my coworkers. And, um, and, and, and instead of tearing relationships down, build them up. Um, and I think that's why we have unfinished business. At least I do. Christian, thank you very much. Jim, thank you. What a privilege to be be on your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, super. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure to meet you. Good people. Christian and Todd Ensign, and uh, we've got some great photos from there, quite a few photos from their adventure. Drop our website and check out the show notes, all at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks of course to our producer Elizabeth Martin and to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey if you're not doing it already I want to ask you to consider supporting the show. This is built on a model of advertising and listener support. Drop our website adventureriderradio.com. Click on support anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, um, anything and anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our, our raw show. That's our other show that we do it comes out monthly. Drop by the website check it out. It's all there. Adventureriderradio.com My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and being part of this episode. And I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 